This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 724, a conversation with Mark Wade and Brian Augustine. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 724. It's my conversation with Mark Wade and Brian Augustine. I've actually had the uh, the great opportunity to speak with both of these men previously, uh, last October. Uh, but this time we were able to bring them back on uh, for an episode where I talked to both of them. Um, last time we had Brian Augustine on the show, uh, we talked specifically about the, I think at the time, first, what, first two or maybe three issues of uh, Archie 1941. This is back from November 2nd, 2018. Um, we recorded it in October. This is episode 622. Um, so this time uh, we actually brought Mark on as well, and we went deep dived back into 1941, what it was like working on that series, how they worked together, uh, and then also talked about their currently running book from Archie, which is 19, Archie 1955, uh, which is similar. The only real real similarity, I guess, is that it's a it's another time period book, um, but it's a really interesting and. Uh, you know, it's a very different tone, uh, sensibility, but uh, still is about you know the core of the Archie characters in a, in a different time period. Um, the original conversation I had with Mark Wade on this show was uh, episode 620. That would have been up October 25th, 2018. Uh, but that one specifically was just about CrossGen's Ruse comic from the early 2000s. Uh, but in this episode, uh, we specific, yeah, specifically just talk about um, the uh, the two Archie books uh, that, they're, that they've done, 1941 and 1955. Uh, I do want to uh, apologize in advance that I I'm a, I've been a little under the weather, uh, and I was when I recorded this, uh, so my voice is a little scratchier than normal, uh, but otherwise I think this was a great episode. It was really great to be able to sit down and talk with both of them and kind of have their perspectives on uh, their collaborations, how they work together. Anyways, um, without further ado, we will get into the show, but first you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. You can rate and review the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again, and let's jump right into the episode as I speak with Mark Wade and Brian Augustine. Mark and Brian, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you guys today? Good. Doing good. So we've had you both on in the past, but now we get to have you both on at the same time. So I want to talk about Archie uh, 55, but before, I feel like it's time to go back and kind of do a postmortem on Archie 1941. Good. So Brian previously had said that, uh, Mark, you kind of roped him into working on the project, and uh, he had the kind of the mind for the research uh, component, but how did Archie Comics first kind of come to you, or did you pitch them the idea of doing this type of miniseries? Actually, they pitched to me. It was uh, Brian, uh, Mike Pellerito, who is the, the editor up there I deal with, great guy. And uh, about a year before we actually started the book, uh, it was pitched. It was apparently the brainchild of... John Goldwater, who was the publisher, and uh, he had decided this would be a fun thing to do. Uh, I was asked for a pitch, and I did a, a sort of a several-page proposal, and then for whatever reason, it, it's kind of sat on the sidelines for a while. It was something it wasn't. They said it wasn't the quality of the work; it was just something about the publishing schedule and stuff. They wanted to hold off for a little while, and so it kind of went into limbo. And uh, at the time, they called and said, "Okay, it's a go." I had two things going against me. One is that I was a little crunch for time, but the bigger thing was 
I am a storyteller, but not a great historian or researcher as far as that stuff goes. History was always my least favorite subject in school, and I was never great at it. And so I know that Brian certainly is more of a student at that era than I am. And it only made sense to call him up and, and team up with him again and, and pull him in on this. Excellent. No, which I'll, is a very nice thing. Well, no, it just made perfect sense. I mean, you're welcome, but it made, but it's it certainly worked out for both of us. Now, to go back way back for a second, obviously you guys have a very long relationship working together, and Brian had kind of mentioned and jokingly passing how he kind of tapped you long ago to kind of work on the Flash. But like, how has that relationship between you two matured over the years, and how do you guys collaborate on current projects? Uh, Brian and I came over on the Mayflower together. <laughs> And, uh, I was going to say, but we haven't matured at all. So no, exactly. Uh, we met when we were both on staff at DC in '87, uh, and uh, a friendship grew right right off the bat. And so we enjoyed in the office just throwing ideas back and forth, bouncing ideas off each other. Uh, it, we, that, we shared an office for a while as well. Yeah, we did. And so it was, you know, it was it was again. Brian and I are both I think, born collaborators. We both enjoy. I think the process of writing is as a, as a collaborative process, something you can throw the ideas back and forth on as much as anything else. So, uh, Brian, you want to take it from there? Well, I think we've, we discovered the friendship first, absolutely, uh, based on things we actually still can't talk about by, by legal uh, <laughs> verdict. But um, I think we discovered the, um, that collaborative gene when when I was editing The Flash and you brought you aboard and we soon discovered that whatever the, you know, whatever half of it we were bringing to the conversation, it was going to come out, you know, eight times better. Um, so we might have had a great idea. Mark might have had a great idea, but until we got it together, um, it didn't become, you know, the stuff that took off so, so well for us on The Flash. Yeah, the alchemy was really unique and it, and it's... It, it was always the idea that we just made each other's ideas better to the point of which I remember I reached a point on Flash where I would get stuck on a problem or get stuck on something. And literally just the act of dialing Brian's phone number sometimes <laughs> would be enough to lo- unlock the, oh, this is what I should do. You know, this is how, how well we depended on each other. Wow. That's that's a, a pretty good symbiosis. Now, when you yeah, guys... Yeah, that sounds a bit icky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least the way, you know, symbiotes by now are kind of a, a nasty thing. <laughs> when you guys actually started kind of actually collaborating and working together, not just in an editor and writer perspective, but actually co-writing together, how do you guys kind of divvy up the work or how do you kind of approach it? Because obviously every partnership has their own way of, of kind of figuring that out. Right. Well, I mean, we tend to, you know, we, we always talk about stuff ahead of time, just get on the phone or or through email or whatever and bounce the basic ideas back and forth and then you know Brian especially with the Archie books and I have to make sure I give him credit Brian does most of the heavy lifting to be honest um, you know Brian will do a, you know an early draft and then we'll throw it back and forth a few times uh, until we both like what it is but uh, you know the, the the brunt of it God bless him is, is the, the brunt of the workload God bless him is on Brian yeah, it's, it's it's fun work no matter what, and we are still collaborating no matter what. 
Right, exactly. I mean, it's still the same amount of energy going in, but you know, the, the, I've always said the guy who actually sits down and has to do the, the typing is the guy who is doing the, the heaviest load. And so, you know, I do my share of typing, but I'm saying Brian, you know, Brian brings the first draft and it goes from there. Excellent. Now, when um, when you got uh, when you first kind of came up with the pitch, and obviously, like it's a very specific idea for Archie nineteen forty one specifically, because obviously you've written a modern version of, of Archie, but now you're writing something that's very different of a t- different time period. Was it difficult to kind of tap into what the kind of forties versions of, of of those characters would be like compared to the ones you'd already been writing in the more modern setting? Uh, not really, to be honest. I mean, to me, at heart, they're the same characters. They their relationships with each other parallel what the modern versions are uh it was really just a matter of going back in the original pitch and the original proposal and and figuring out individually what every character's response to the the time period would be again this is and we start in early 1941 or at least mid 1941 and we were not in the war yet and america was not part of the war effort yet and people forget that there was a lot of division here on the home front as to whether or not we should intervene at all. It really wasn't until December 7th and Pearl Harbor that we, you know, as a nation decided, okay, you know, it's time to go in because we were attacked. But before then, there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of uh, isolationist thinking. And not, again, not evil or bad, but it just, it, you know, in the sense that this was something that's happening overseas, um, there was a, there was resistance to getting in. And I also throw into there the idea that you have to remember that 24-hour news was certainly nowhere near a thing back then. People would get a morning paper and maybe an evening paper. Maybe they'd listen to Walter Winchell or they, they tune into the news on the radio in the evening, but beyond that, they weren't inundated 24-7 with news from around the world and so out of sight out of mind you know the idea that there's a war on in europe is of some concern but it wasn't really as omnipresent as that kind of thing is today so i like i said I, i went through and and sort of decided for myself how every character would respond to the possibility of america entering the war and what their convictions would be, what their attitudes would be, and that sort of went from there. And as I said, Brian and I then talked about it and expanded upon that. Which of the the kind of the '40s versions of these characters did you think that not necessarily surprised you, but felt as you guys developed it further, it felt maybe it went more afield from where we typically find that character, or was more of a character journey than normally we would see? Um, I, I think mean, Reggie probably, yeah. Reggie, actually, it was one. Go ahead. Talk about that for a minute, Brian, because I have another one in my mind. Okay. Um, I, I think that when we approached it, um, especially if you look at the first issue, where Reggie is fully in Reggie character, he you know, hits uh, Archie in the head with a giant beach ball, <laughs> but then uncharacteristically, Archie belts him. Um, and sort of from there, he, he we see an arc over the issues where he goes through some some stuff, first minor, then major, um, where he sort of recognizes his own humanity. And then uh, the whole idea of the war brings some some stuff out of him that's very surprising. 
Hmm. Yeah, and as far as... And, go ahead, sorry. No, I was going to say, what, uh, and what was your character, Mark? I was thinking Chughead, in, in a way. You know, the constant of the Archie universe is the friendship bond between Archie and, and Jughead. And the right. sort of, you know, unfailing, unquestioned, um, you know, unconditional bond between the two of them, the friendship between the two of them, is that the idea of seeing a rift between them is something that you know, we're not used to seeing. Is I don't think we've done much with it in terms of a long-term, you know, months-long rift between the two. But, you know, when Archie enlisted, Chuck had felt betrayed. Chuck had felt abandoned and... And uh, that anger and that frustration toward Archie was a real uh, driving force behind that character and it became a very important plot point. Compounded by the fact that Jughead's dad refused to let him go to the service. Mm. Right. So that he had all of this seething, you know, frustration. You know, his buddy was over there. He couldn't go over there. He was abandoned. It, it builds to a nice head, if you will. Yeah, because one of the things that is important that, and I, I've shared the story here and there before, but let me go into it one more time. One of the big reveals to me when I was doing the initial research was that I had written the entire proposal about the fact that, oh my God, America's going into war, our boys are going to be drafted, Archie and Jughead and, and, and <laughs> Reggie, and what's going to happen to them, and how will the town react to their boys being torn from them? And, uh, you know, will they be supportive? Will they not be supportive? They did the whole thing. I mean, it really wrote up the entire, like, several-page document on this thing. And it's the last second, I thought, just to check something, what was the draft age in 1941? Any idea? I'm going to throw this out to our moderator. What would be your guess? I mean, I think I know the answer only because I think I remember Brian telling me before, but I would have thought it was 18 or 19. I would have thought it was 18 too, and it turns out it was 21. And so a huge part of the emotional you know, arc of the story had to be reworked in that way. So we – but in, in the end, I think it worked out to our advantage as, as storytellers because instead of the drama of it being parents and kids and our kids being torn away from us and how we're going to react, that gave us the opening for, say, the Archie – Jughead split because Archie all these kids, any kid who is involved in this war, any of the Archie kids who, are, who actually are actively involved are kids who actually volunteered, who actually you know, on their own volunteered for the job. It almost makes it more difficult. You could enter the, you could enter the service at 18 if you had your parents' permission. Mm-hmm. Right. I was going to say Hardly a draft. It, it makes it almost more challenging from a writing perspective because I guess the draft, not that it's a crutch, but it's easier if you know, they have to do something. Whereas if you have to get them into that, you know, scenario, but you have to, you know, create reasons why these characters would, would do that to themselves and why some characters wouldn't, it's, it's much more, it ends up being a lot more interesting for just from a storytelling perspective. Well, we, we know from issue one that Archie has some sort of issue. He's, he's going through, uh, he's graduated high school. He doesn't know what he's going to do next. He's getting a lot of pressure from his father to grow up and, the, the pressure of the coming war puts some interesting frustration um, on Fred, uh, Archie's dad, because he, you know, it, we will later learn, he, he, he didn't go into the service in World War I. Uh, 
I don't think it was too young. I think he was a sole support of his mother or something. But he did not go into the service. And now here, he's looking at his kid, wanting him to grow up and thinking, you know, why aren't you in the in the service? And then Fred realizes later, that's the last thing in the world he really wanted. Hmm. But Archie feels this pressure. He also has his own internal pressure to grow up or to at least know what it means. And, uh, and that leads him to his decision. Right. And this idea of growing up is important too. And it, it takes on a whole new context when you actually look at the era. The idea of teenagers as we think of them today is, you know, the, the teenage lifestyle and, and the kids sort of, you know, having their own interests and their own sort of degree of freedom as teenagers and stuff and not really being expected to grow up until, you know, college age, really less important back then, less less true back then. It was, that's really much more of a post-war baby boomer concept. Back then, you know, it's not like the kids were all expected to you know, work in factories when they were eight, but their, that mentality of, you know, you contribute to the family. You, you know, it's your obligation as a as a kid to put family first and and you know really earn your keep as soon as you can. You know, I think that's. I mean, Brian, would you agree? That's a that's a fair assessment of kind of what the. No, absolutely, the and, and one of one of the main reasons consider is that that America, well into the twenties, was still fairly an agrarian country where people, you know, families and, and uh, much of the population was in rural uh, farm areas. And if you're a, if you grew up on a farm, you're, you are working at eight, <laughs> probably at six. Um, and that spread, I mean, you know, the, the generation, like Archie's parents, their generation would have grown up with the idea that, you know, the family is a unit that, that uh, you know, shares all the work. Uh, you know, the whole, I mean, I'm not sure if people even know what the term chores means anymore, but I know from my parents, you know, that was expected. So if you were a teenager, it wasn't even something you tried to get out of. It was just nature. Hmm. So it's, 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 it's an interesting point to kind of shift over then, because then you guys are now working on Archie 55, which is completely, feels completely different and obviously a very different time period. And where did this kind of idea come uh, come about? Did they decide that that forty one worked out so well they wanted to do different time periods, or what was the conversation like shifting gears into this new series? I want to remember that it was our pitch, Brian. Does that jive, or did that's right? Or, yeah, that we had so much fun at forty one, and it was so well received in the office that it, you know they were going to want to see. I, mean, I think they would have asked us had we not asked them first, but. Mm. You know, the idea of doing decades and periods like that made perfect sense. And and as a dyed-in-the-wool Elvis fan that I am, and as a you know, as knowledgeable as Brian is of that era in music as well, that made perfect sense to us. Hmm. Actually, one before I actually get too far into fifty-five, I got to ask with um, with Peter doing the art on the first uh, on the first on, on forty-one and having a very specific. Uh, Tone and tone and sensibility. How, did he was was he part of like your kind of your pitch to be working on that book, or how did he come to be the artist on Forty One? I'm trying to remember who I had trying to remember whether I threw him in the mix for Forty One or whether Mike Pellerito did. I want to say 
I'll take credit for it only because I've worked so extensively with Pete <laughs> over the years. I knew he could handle it. I knew that that was really in his wheelhouse. Boy, I think that really was the best work of his career so far. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I yeah, know it's it's fantastic stuff. So then, we're switching into Archie Fifty Five, a completely different style. Again, did you guys kind of um, you know position Grummet to be the one to come on board, or again, how did how did you line up the artwork? Um, I, you know, I'm I'm not I, to be honest, to be brutally honest. I mean, he would have been our first choice only because not to, not to knock anybody else's work on the book, but only because of the continuity between Forty One and Fifty Five, and sort of making it sort of feel not of a piece, but sort of related. I mean, Pete would have been our our first choice, but unfortunately, Pete was had prior commitments that he couldn't he couldn't join in. So then we were on the look. And, you know, Brian, you brought a lot of names to the table, and I think Pellerito did as well. We had a list at one point that was at least a dozen. Right. And that would have included, uh, obviously, the final choice, and but people like Jerry Ordway were on that list, and mm. everybody interested, but five issues is a big commitment now, you know, for for most working artists. Right. Something so it, it worked itself out. Yeah, I, I, I've always enjoyed working with Tom. Uh, I, I, I discovered him at DC, if you will. I uh, brought him in and was always a fan of his work back in the day. And, and, and I thought that he could really handle a slightly more loose, open style for that era, a little bouncier style, which fit with the kind of story we were going to tell. And sure enough, he, right. he brought the heat. He brought the heat. There was there was going to be a lot more fun, obviously. I mean, not complete. It's it still has plenty of drama in fifty five, but it was it it was intended from the beginning to be a lighter, and and after after World War Two, and near death, how how could it not be? But um, Tom's style not only was it appropriate, he had a, I think a classical cartoon style has a classical cartoon style. And and that sort of fit the 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 develop the the idea that uh, developed around what fifty five would be, what it would look like. Hmm. Yeah. Now the I mean forty one obviously had a, a good kind of romantic thorough line with Archie and Betty, whereas so far in the first two issues of fifty five, it's very different. It's a little bit less on the kind of more classical soap opera um, kind of ideas, and a little bit more on the progression of. Of character and what was kind of happening in the zeitgeist at the time, or was about to happen in the zeitgeist at the time. What kind of developed that decision to maybe not focus as much on more of the classical tropes? Brian, why'd you take that? Why'd you take that? In nineteen forty, in the nineteen forty-one book, um, the romance was definitively from the beginning with Betty. Uh, Veronica was a flirt, but she was not someone Archie was uh, was dabbling with. Dabbling sounds wrong. Um, <laughs> but she was not on, on his radar, and the main reason for that was if we were going to have romance in an Archie book, at least as far as I was concerned, I was going to hold my breath and snap my feet until it was Betty, because, let's be honest, Betty is the only choice. Yep. But uh, <laughs> come, come the planning for 55... Because of some of the internal um, structure, uh, the fact that Hiram Lodge, Veronica's dad, becomes Archie's Colonel Parker, um, meant that Veronica was always going to be closer by virtue of of the storyline 
once they were outside of Riverdale, which will come, spoiler alert, um, she became his anchor. So the romance there uh, grew out of the out of the story. But also, I think in some sense we thought, well, we at least should be fair hmm. and, and let Veronica have one. Legal time, yeah. Is it fair to say oh, that... Well, to be honest with you, the, while Betty may be the only choice, I have no idea why either one of them chooses Archie. He seems to be such a goofball. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, is it fair to say that, I mean, in 41 felt like Riverdale itself was is almost as important a character than, than Archie. Like, it, there was just so many stories that were kind of happening, so many characters that you guys were using that really felt so lived in and fleshed out, like the parents, for example, really having story beats of their own that felt like it, it mattered and that you were really understanding how Riverdale itself was experiencing this wartime period and then how Archie was kind of the personification of that. With 55, is it fair to say that Riverdale is maybe a little bit less of a character and we're more about kind of examining culturally what was happening in 55? Yeah, this is a cultural yeah. story. I think that's fair. I mean, with you know, with that kind of story, the world broadens for these characters in, in, in the sense that it's partly about Hollywood, it's partly about Nashville, it's partly about, you know, you're, you know, you're a nationwide sensation, so obviously the, the whole story breaks open beyond the boundaries of Riverdale. How do you position, like, uh, it's interesting in the first couple of issues where you have kind of Archie kind of having a talent but not really knowing how to hone it and then kind of stumbling into discovering different types of music and then bringing it out. How do you how do you draw the line or walk that line with of, of kind of keeping him still being very lovable and kind of doing things that maybe he shouldn't be doing but still having that that sensibility that we're not we're not upset at Archie for doing it and even the you know the character I forget his name now but the the, art, the artist who kind of gives him a way out and says like just don't do this in the future and then you know we're, we're cool we're square like how do you kind of draw that line to keep him still so lovable and us still rooting for him well I don't bet you haven't read the back half of the series yet fair enough <laughs> but it's, it's also true that the I think you're referring to the fact that he seems to steal a song Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, one that that reflects what was happening, um, and and frankly, is part of the subtext of the of the series reflecting reality. Uh, black music was, you know, so as with everything else, was so shoved into uh, you know its own small, relatively unknown niche that uh, you know that Pat Boone could record, uh, you know. A Little Richard song, um, and and none of those artists uh, who created, wrote, uh, performed, none of them was getting credit or money. Um, so we wanted to touch on that because it's part of the history of rock and roll. And uh, in Archie's case, he doesn't know the rules yet. He's you know he's he's barely starting out, and he makes a mistake, apologizes, makes it all right. But it never that whole context expands and and. Uh, you know, evolves in a way as as part of the backstory. But Archie, I think Archie here more than anything is innocent, and uh, his 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 great sin at the beginning is that he's naive. Mm. Right. I mean, again, this idea of cultural appropriation is a fairly recent awareness of white people and that this has been going on for a long time. So. The idea of you know of what went on in the 1950s in terms of appropriating these songs is obviously indefensible. Uh, but from a 1955 point of view, 
nobody gave it a second thought. It was just the way things were, and that's not an excuse. It's just the reality. I think Brian did a really good job of you know, making sure that we hit up. I wouldn't have thought to hit upon that note, and Brian really did. And uh, through there, like he, like Archie, like Brian just said, you know, Archie. We get to explore that through Archie without making Archie a villain. Uh, my cryptic comment earlier was more along the lines of, you know, Archie being eternally likable and eternally making the, the the choice that we we want him to make in terms of being a sweet kid. You know, there's a lot of temptation ahead of him in the in the world of 1955, and there's a lot of chances for him to, you know, he's a big star overnight and overnight sensations don't always keep the most level head. Hmm. So there, and everything is showing up on his doorstep unasked. Right. And so, you know, even with Archie, that's going to play with his head some. For sure. When, what was it like writing a character like uh, Rick Sterling? Like has a very, you know, everyone kind of remembers that kind of idea of that character in a lot of different media. What is it like to actually kind of write that dialogue and kind of keep that kind of flow moving? Well, that was that was Brian's invention altogether. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only reason Rick existed is so that we could have somebody use the word "daddy-o" in a sentence. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Rick is a Rick is a is a, a what, what's the word? A, a sort of a doorway character. He he exists in those early issues to start Archie thinking about an actual career. He he technically, I guess, discovers Archie. Yeah, he's, he's um, Sam Phillips, basically. Yeah. In a way, yeah, yeah. Or you know, I'm, I'm blanketing on the name of the DJ who coined rock and roll. But um, yeah, Alan Freed. What is it? Yeah, Alan, Alan Freed. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I had I had that kind of thing in mind because DJs were, uh, you know, uh, music DJs in the '50s were that's a was a coming thing. It was brand new prior, obviously, to the drama and news and all that. But um, in fact, Archie had been on the radio. But um, anyway, the whole idea was that there there is in the stages of every a, a whole lot of, of rock and roll biographies that moment where somebody recognizes it and points the way. So that's why Rick exists, I guess. And also yeah. so that we could use the word daddy-o in a second. Right. <laughs> yeah, people, again, this is, again, boy, this is, you know, I think this is probably more of a history lesson podcast than you're used to broadcasting here, but, you know, the, the disc jockeys back in the day and radio personalities back in the day were hit makers. I mean, they were star makers, man, uh, you know, as opposed to today where it's all pre-programmed stuff and, and, and you don't really get a chance to pick your music and you're really kind of just there to be a voice between songs. You know, back in the back in the fifties and early sixties, disc jockeys were, you know, they were the guys who found the local talent. They were the guys who found the local sensations and would play that music and and get national attention for the artists they believed in. And you know, they didn't. And many were also celebrities themselves by virtue of that power. Mm. Yeah, sure. Not just Wolfman Jack, but a, but a bunch of others. Yeah. Um, and and it, not all of them used that power completely altruistically. I mean, there were a lot of disc jockeys who got kickbacks from artists or kickbacks from studios for pumping this artist or that artist, a little um, payola. But and I, luckily, I don't think I don't think we decided that Rick Sterling is. I think we decided he's one of the good guys, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I mean, there's no there's no negative that I recall. Right. 
other than the fact that he talks like an idiot. Right. But uh, <laughs> no, no, he seems he seems genuinely into music, uh, so he's in it for the right reasons. Yeah. Fun fact, by the way, the term payola is one of those things where I discovered, as you know, as we as we did so many times in both books, discovered that the history wouldn't support my pre presupposition. Uh, payola was not an issue until about 1962. The mm. word wasn't even used until after 1960. Really? I, I mean, it was going on, yeah. but nobody nobody was looking at it, and nobody certainly had that term in mind. Yeah, interesting. I didn't know that. It's interesting. I'm curious. So it, 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 gave, it gave us a, a left turn we didn't take. <laughs> I was curious about the automatic recording studio. Is that like a real thing that was there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Again, Absolutely. I mean, they they existed long enough to uh, to still have been around in the late '60s when I was a, a kid. Um, and certainly, yeah. I mean, I provided Tom something in the ballpark of about a dozen pictures right. from <laughs> different angles. Yeah. For those who haven't read the the story yet or haven't picked up issue two yet, I mean, the idea is that Pop Tate's big contribution in the story is that in the place of the old Wurlitzer jukebox that's five years uh, out of service in the corner gathering dust, he decides to instead replace it with a, you know, a recording studio that they had. Like Again, not unlike you know photo booths that you see in malls these days, or mm-hmm. used to, you know, you still see in malls these days, that sort of come in, you know, do your thing on the cheap, and uh, make your own little record, uh, and so you know, Pop brings one of those into his chocolate shop, and without that, Archie and his gang would never have been able to and, cut a record. And he does it specifically for Archie. Yeah, it's not just a random thing that turns out to be uh, helpful. He does it so that Archie can cut his demo. Yeah, he sees something. And, and, Archie. Yeah, and in and in reference to you know those booths and and that time, most they're not big as we as we play one of the gags, they're not very big. And you might've gotten two people inside one of these booths to record. And so therefore most of what people were doing was sending, you know, uh, vocal letters back home or whatever. Hi mom. Um, the way we would now do an Insta, uh, what do they call that thing? Anyway, Instagram (laughs) messages. But, um, the whole idea of those things was largely like the photo booths, for maybe two people tops. And so one of the gags we get is to figure out how to get a band in there. <laughs> yeah. I did appreciate how in like the first issue you definitely you were building up to the idea that Pop was going to do something, right? Like you you do build it into him kind of thinking like, well, how do you cut a record in this town and kind of looking at the fact that there's that machine that's out of out of order. And so I like that you kind of built that in there so when you get there in the second issue, it's not out of nowhere. It feels like it's been built up. The one consistent line I thought between the two, between 41 and 55, is that, and I didn't, I don't know that we did it by discussion, I think it's just a natural inclination. Pop is like a benevolent angel. Yeah. Hmm. He thinks of his customers as his children in a way. Um, And in both books, he's literally watching out, helping, you know, prodding things along where he can, etc. So I think we like Pop. Yeah, I always. Yeah, I mean, when I was writing the book, uh, when I was writing the modern day version of the book, I always loved Pop for that very reason. I always thought that he's been a fixture in town, 
Um, you know, he was in business when all these kids' parents were teenagers. They're pitching woo in the booths and, you know, and getting in <laughs> trouble and coming out. So he's watched these kids grow up. He really genuinely loves Betty and Archie and, you know, Chuckhead and Veronica and Reggie, uh, you know, like he would his own children. Uh, and so the, the idea that he looks after them, the idea that he will go the extra mile for these kids makes perfect sense. I have a question about the, the, the way in which you guys have handled um, Fred Andrews because between the two different series because it definitely feels like um, reading him briefly, I mean, obviously he does make a lot of appearances so far, at least in 55, but he feels like an, a much older dad or at least the way in which he reacts and um, kind of uh, communicates with his son com- compared to in 41 where it felt like it was a little bit closer in age or at least the sensibility wasn't that different. Was that a meaningful like, done for a specific reason or is it just a nature of the time? Brian, I don't think we approached him as any different in age. I think the, uh, I mean, I think we, if you do the math in 41, he's about 45, and which would be natural to have a 20-year-old son. Um, and I don't think the age difference is, if anything, Archie being slightly younger at the start of 55, um, I don't think we think of Fred as, as older. I think we portray him here with some of that, I think maybe have, have come out of the, the way that that uh, Pete, in his you know a sort of uh, uh, what expressionistic uh, realism, made Fred much more a realistic person. Mm. Even gave him hair. Uh, <laughs> that might be part of it. I think we're playing. I think we're playing Fred here as as a typical adult. In a you know he loves his son. He clearly very supportive. But he hasn't a clue what Archie's talking about, even when Archie isn't using the term daddy-o. So <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's probably more of a, of a, a temporal, a, a thing of his age and time. And um, I think yeah, the I fact that he's more clueless may, right. to rock and roll may, may make him look older. Right. We, needed, we definitely needed somebody who was a recurring character in the book who could embody... The, the fact that back in the days the generational gap was so divided over rock and roll that you know adults really would just roll their eyes and think oh my god what is this devil's music that these kids are putting out this is ridiculous <laughs> and it's I can't wait for it to go away so that Artie Shaw can come back on my radio <laughs> and you say you don't know anything about the time period <laughs> yeah I've, I've learned I've learned Last question for you guys. Um, in 55, obviously a big part of it is music. So who's writing the lyrics to this to these songs? Brian. Yeah, that's my dog rule. Yep. <laughs> so yep. w- what was your process in terms of writing the lyrics to these the songs that are supposedly, you know, Archie's big hit? I listen to, I mean, I pointedly listen to a lot of, of um, R&B if it was called that yet, blues and early rock uh, to see uh, thematic and and also looking for the uh, what's the word I want here the cadence the the rhythm mm-hmm. of the of the lyrics. Um, I, I've never tried anything like that before. There are there are no uh, hidden records from my rock and roll past, but <laughs> um, more than anything, it was it was a dog roll and b uh, a result of of studying the music of the time. So I would, you know, sit at my computer with, with, uh, 
you know, Spotify or something playing Chuck Berry. Yeah, if anybody's got, if any listeners out there want to actually take these words, put them to music, and be very happy to hear what you come up with. Yeah, we won't sue, but we won't pay either. So right, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, and is is there anything you can tease about what's coming up in the next couple of issues, Brian? Yeah, the uh, the arc of the story is Archie's uh, rising career in rock and roll, and uh, after number two, as as Mark referenced, uh, Hollywood becomes a big part of the story, and uh, and we see uh, the growth of that career through television and more records and movies, and uh, and uh, we we find out that Hiram Lodge is the same guy we always thought he was. <laughs> yep. Excellent. Well, again, thank you guys both so much for coming on and talking about both of these books, and uh, would love to have you back on in the future once 55 is wrapped up. Terrific. Absolutely. Thanks so much, guys. Our pleasure. Thank you.